with me. Father God, your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Your word is bread to feed our bodies and our souls. Father, we pray uh, for light to our minds this morning as we study your word. We pray for bread to feed our hunger. We ask that we would be transformed as we study your word together. Please strengthen me as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's on. Can you unmute me, Evan? So, uh, we're in Acts chapter 3 this morning. Um, So that's page 911 of the Church Bibles. Um, Those of you who've been on this journey with us so far will remember um, that we've uh, covered the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, and then Peter preaching to the first group uh, of Jews in the temple on the day of Pentecost. Um, And now we come to uh, Acts chapter 3 with another uh, great sermon at the temple. Um, this is an extensive passage. I'm glad we read it all together because it, obviously it's all part of the same story. Uh, it's far too much for me to preach well on everything uh, in this short time. So I'm going to focus um, heavily on the beginning part, the actual uh, healing miracle itself. Uh, and then I've got a, a, a couple of um, notes on the sermon. I wish I had uh, another two or three sermons uh, to talk about Peter's sermon, but um, just a couple of notes I'm going to give you. So it's Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 1 on page 911. So chapter 3 begins with Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour. And Taylor taught us last week that the apostles and the early Christians devoted themselves to prayer, or more specifically to the prayers, it says at the end of Luke chapter 2. And this almost certainly centered around the appointed times of prayer at the temple, And they happened at the third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Or by our clock, that's uh, 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. So off went Peter and John to the 3 p.m. prayer meeting. Um, And Luke's language at the beginning of chapter 3 suggests routine, right? So this wasn't just a freak attack of piety by Peter and John or uh, the beginning of a New Year's resolution. Uh, It was a well-established part of their daily pattern, their habit, their rule of life. And on the way to the temple, they met a man with another daily pattern. His routine was to be carried by his friends to the temple steps to beg. He went every day because it was a good place to meet compassionate people. But he had to be carried there because he had been lame from birth and there were no wheelchairs, or at least none that he could get his hands on. So we can imagine that this man was a regular fixture at the beautiful gate of the temple, day after day, year after year, because he didn't have any other options. There was no welfare, no disability program, no Medicare, no food stamps, there were no equal opportunity employment laws, and no public hospitals. He couldn't work, he had no state help, clearly his family couldn't support him, so his choice was to beg or die. And so he was living a kind of semi-life, a half-life, a living death. It's likely that he took his place just outside the temple because he wasn't allowed to come in. He was separated from the worshipping community. The law of Moses didn't stop him going into the temple, but the temple officials probably did stop him. So that's where Peter and John met him, at the temple gate. And he asked them for arms to spare some loose change just as he must have asked a hundred thousand other strangers. 
And Peter and John responded to the man. They started, if you look at it, by paying attention to him. And Luke makes a really big deal of this part. I, I noticed this as I was studying it. So do you notice that Luke spends two verses on the fact that Peter and John and the lame man look at each other? He spends two verses on that. He's a very concise writer, and he doesn't waste words when he tells a story. He tells this whole story in just ten verses, but he spends two of them on the eye contact. Verses four and five. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, I expect all of us at some time have given some sort of charity to people in the street. Um, and we'll realize that the act of giving and receiving charity is really usually very impersonal, isn't it? If someone's out there asking for help, they tend to get a few coins here and there from a lot of different people. And so they re repeat the same conversation, the same script, a thousand times a day until the words lose any sense of real human interaction. Beggars can't possibly be relational with everyone they meet, everyone who stops any more than you can smile and say hi to everyone you bump into on a New York City sidewalk. So giving and receiving alms becomes a very mechanical transaction. One person's sense of duty responding to another person's need without either heart or personality really being involved. And perhaps that's why Luke spends two verses on the eye contact between Peter and John and the lame man to show that it wasn't like that. This was different. This was a human exchange. Look at us. When I was in London this summer, I saw a lot of people out on the streets asking for money. But there was one man in particular that caught my attention. So I was in the city with my mom and my children, and we were on our way to the theater to see the musical Matilda. And the city was buzzing with people. Uh, and as we walked along one of the crowded sidewalks, we passed a man who was sitting on the ground holding a small cardboard sign. He was probably about in his 40s and he looked like he'd been homeless for a very long time. He was thin and dirty and ragged with a ratty blanket over his knees. And his sign said, today is my birthday, please help me end it with a hot dinner. And the four of us walked past him a little way and then my heart moved me and I pulled my children aside and I asked them if they'd seen that man and they said, yes, they had. And they told me, today is his birthday. So I gave each of them some cash I had. I don't usually give cash, but I did this time. Uh, and we went back up the street so that they could give it to the man. And they both stood there and wished him a happy birthday. Um, and he was clearly deeply moved by the children's sweetness. And he thanked them. And he told me that he'd been sitting there for hours. And we were the first people who'd taken any notice of him. And I suspect that it was the human contact that meant much more to him than the money. With his sign, he'd made a bid to be known, to be seen. And we had responded by seeing him. So in this story in Acts 3, the human contact is an important foundation for the miracle that follows. It's a real human interaction. Peter and John give a gift of love. Peter said, look at us, and the man looked. Peter directed his gaze, and the man fixed his attention. And in the midst of that busy gateway, thronging with the noise of conversation and passing feet, is created a moment of privacy and quiet contact. Now, of course, what Peter had to give the man was far better than silver or gold. And by now, after a couple of years studying Luke's gospel together, we might no longer find the miracle itself amazing or surprising. 
Of course the man was healed. How else could the story go? This is Jesus we're dealing with. And this kind of thing happens all the time with him. Wonderful, yes. A reason for joy and celebration, yes. But surprising, not really. And if we've started to feel a bit that way, then we've actually come a little bit closer to seeing the world like a first century Jew. Because none of them doubted God's power to move in the world. Their whole history was full of it. And for them, even present-day miracles weren't that uncommon. So when Jews are amazed by miracles in the Bible, it's never just about the event itself just that something supernatural just happened. That isn't surprising. What truly amazes them is always the way it's done, the extent of the miracle, and what the miracle signifies. Those are the amazing things to first century Jews. So imagine if John Orsell played his trombone to a lost Amazonian tribe who had never heard of or imagined brass instruments, right? They might be amazed that a piece of metal could make that much sound when you blow on it. Um, we, ourselves, are also amazed when John Orsell plays his trombone, but for different reasons. We know about brass instruments, but we're amazed by John's skill, by his ear, his musicality, and his perfect tone. And so, similarly, first century Jews were amazed by the quality of Jesus' miracles, not merely that they were happening at all. So if we're going to be amazed by the healing of the lame man, it shouldn't be merely that he got better. It was an unusually powerful miracle since he had been lame from birth. And clearly, over the course of his life, no other rabbi or mystic or healer had been able to do anything for him. So it was a powerful miracle. But the truly striking thing about it is that the man was healed by a command. He was healed by command. Peter didn't pray. He didn't chant or mix potions or cast a spell or evoke a spirit or dance around. Peter commanded, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's a command. It's the same way Peter, uh, Jesus himself healed people. And it's a command that's given in Jesus' name. So that means by Jesus' authority. And this is the first time in scripture when a follower of Jesus makes such a command in his name. And that's why this story is amazing. Giving a command is the action of a king or an army general. It suggests hierarchical authority. So in the US Army, a general can command a colonel, and a colonel can command a major, and a major can command a captain, and a captain can command a lieutenant, all the way down to the lowest ranking private. So if I'm a captain in the army, I can give orders because I take orders. My authority comes from being part of a system, part of that hierarchy. I don't have authority in and of myself, but only because of my rank. So when I tell a lieutenant what to do, he does it. Because behind me stands the authority of a major, and behind him a colonel, and behind him a general, all the way up to the president himself. And for the same reason, I, a captain, obey the orders of my major. If I don't, then I'll be dishonorably discharged. And then not even the lowliest private will do anything I say. So I only have authority because I'm under authority. 
And so it is here with Peter. He has brought himself fully and unquestioningly under the command of Jesus. And that puts him in the chain of command. And his place in that chain of command gives him authority to order a lame man to be healed. Peter states explicitly what's implicitly true of his position. He says, in Jesus' name, be healed. And the army captain might say to his lieutenant, in the president's name, board the 0600 flight out of Fort Benning. But he doesn't need to say the first part because his uniform and his insignia say that part for him. Like the army captain, Peter has authority because he's under authority. And we need to be clear that those two things go together. Some people like one and some people like the other. Some people like to be commanded and some people like to give commands. So some people join up in the army because they like to be given their orders. They like to know what they're supposed to be doing and to have the peace and security of a clear job to do, the simplicity of not having to decide. And some people join the army because they like to give orders. They like to be respected and obeyed to make decisions and to feel the power. But everybody in the organization has to get comfortable with both. With both. Because everybody except the highest and lowest ranks has to do both. And it's the same with the servants of God. If we put ourselves under the authority of Jesus, then we're also given authority in the world. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we are wholeheartedly submissive to Jesus' commands, we're also powerful in this world. If we're acting in his name, we have power in his name. So like the army recruit, we have to get comfortable both giving orders and taking and I suspect that we all find one of those parts much easier than the other. Some of us sign up with Jesus because we want to be led. We want a shepherd, a father, a master, someone to provide for us, someone to lead us and tell us who we are and what to do with our lives, someone to love us and cherish us. And that's good. God wants to do all those things. But do you know that you also have rank in God's kingdom? You have authority. Authority to command in Jesus' name, to lead, to direct. You aren't passive in your home, leading your children and in the affairs of your household. You aren't passive in your neighborhood, in the lives of the people who live near you. You aren't passive in your work and in the opportunities it gives you to enrich people's lives and make the world a better place. And you aren't passive when the people you love are sick or needy or stuck in a dark place. You have authority in Jesus' name. You're probably the kind of person who knows what needs to be said and is afraid to say it, or knows what needs to be done and is afraid to do it. But be brave and do what you know is right because you have authority in Jesus' name. So when he commands you or moves your heart to act, act with confidence in that authority. Now, on the other hand, some of us sign up with Jesus because we want to lead. So some people join a church and right away they want to start a Bible study or a new small group or they want to get stuck right in working for social justice. And people like that are comfortable exercising authority. And that's great. Those are good things too. But if that's you, are you also submitting to Jesus? Are you wholeheartedly under his authority? Are you acting in his name and with his power? Are you waiting for his lead? instead of running out ahead of him. Because if you're trying to exercise authority without being under authority, then you're not acting in Jesus' name, you're acting in your own name and in your own strength. And your name and your strength don't have power to save the world. 
The authority of Jesus comes to us in two ways, and we need to listen to both of them. So it comes to us directly, and it comes to us indirectly. It comes to us directly through our own relationship with Jesus. He speaks to us through his word and by his Holy Spirit, convicting our consciences and moving our hearts. And it also comes to us indirectly through his church. Jesus created his church as a channel for his authority. The church has made big mistakes and it's never perfect, but Jesus has never given up on it. He's never decided just to do without it and just work with individuals. And he still calls Christian men and women to submit to him through his church, not abandoning their own direct contact with the king, but neither ignoring the appointed structure of the kingdom. So if we're receiving orders and not giving them, then we're passive and our lives will be bare limited fruit. If we're giving orders without taking them, then we're acting in our own strength and any fruit we do bear won't last. If we're neither receiving nor giving orders, then we're living independent lives that are cut off from the kingdom of God entirely. But if we're both receiving orders and giving them, then we're useful servants of God's kingdom and our lives will bear much fruit in the world, just like Peter's did. So do you want to do more good in the lives of the homeless than just buying them a birthday dinner? Do you want to do more good for Puerto Rico than just sending them a few dollars of hurricane relief and do more good to the hungry than just donating a few cans of food? These things are fine. I'm glad people do them, but do they really fix the problem? We console ourselves by saying small acts can make a big difference. No, they can't. Not really. Big problems need a big solution. Sure, a few random acts of kindness are better than nothing, but we have no right to pat ourselves on the back and tell ourselves we've done a good job. We console ourselves that we've done our best, we did what we could, but maybe we haven't. There's an organization set up to change the world, and our best is to sign up, to enlist, and get behind what it's doing. The kingdom of God is here, and it's doing way more for the needs of the world than just dropping a few coins in a bucket. Our best is to enlist in it. Many faithful Jews passed that lame man on the way up to the temple for the 3 p.m. prayers. He was there every day, and they all knew him. And it was a generous culture that placed a high value on charity and almsgiving. So how many of them had helped that man in the past? How many of them had given him a few coins to buy food, or maybe one or two of them stopped at the bagel shop on their way to prayer once or twice a week and bought him dinner? Maybe they sat there and prayed with him. Maybe they called a friend who had a gift of healing to come and lay hands on him. And he thanked them, and he survived another day. But for all their kindness, his condition was still hopeless. He was still stuck living a kind of living death. But Peter said to him, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Peter raised up the lame man. He raised him to his feet and he raised him to new life. This is the big solution 
that the big problem needed. He wasn't lame anymore. He wasn't a beggar anymore. He was a worshipper and a worker and a walker and a leaper and a dancer, a dead man raised up to new life. And can we imagine that those Jews in the temple weren't deeply moved to see him? This is something they'd wanted. Their hearts had wanted it. They looked for it. They prayed for it. Who had done what none of them could do? Jesus had. Jesus has the authority to meet the big problem with a big solution. And what the world needs now isn't random acts of kindness. It's resurrection power. While the Jews stood there astounded at the lame man's exuberance, Peter explained to them that this is the power of the name of Jesus. You killed the author of life, but God raised him up. And it's through faith in his name that this lame man has now been raised up. The power of God is on display. And we need nothing less than the power of God to save the world. So Peter says to them, he invites them, he commands them in verse 19, repent, the word that we studied in detail two weeks ago, repent, turn around, stop walking away from God and turn toward God. Leave your old life behind, start a new life. Repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And Peter holds out to them a great promise. This miracle is good news. It means God has appointed Jesus as king. It means that Jesus has the authority to save and to raise the dead. And though you're wicked, though you killed him, you're invited back. You're invited to turn back. You're invited back into the family. Forgiveness. Your past sins blotted out. Restoration. And times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. This same resurrection power can flow into you and through you yeah. to the world. Yeah. So come into God's kingdom, the kingdom of God's new king. Enlist, change, and be an agent of change. It's a bright and wonderful promise. The way was open then, and 5,000 of them took it, we learn in Acts chapter 4. And the same way is still open to us today. The offer still stands but it won't be open forever. Along with the bright promise Peter gave those Jews, he added a sober warning. He demonstrated to them that the prophecy of Moses had now been fulfilled. Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That's in Deuteronomy 18. And he added the warning, which Peter quotes in verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The good news is that God's bright promises are available to us, Gentiles as well as Jews, 21st century people as well as 1st century people. But the flip side is that the Bible's warnings apply to us too. To put it bluntly, listen to Jesus or be destroyed. God has established his prophet who teaches everyone the way to approach God, the one and only way. God has established his king, the one before whom every knee will bow. Every knee. You will bow your knee to Jesus. You will bow it sooner or later. You can bow it now in love as he comes to free you and rescue you and raise you up. Or you can bow it later in terror as he comes to destroy you. 
And I'm not trying to be dramatic. But I am responsible <laughs> under God to give you his message, the full message, both the promise and the warning. I fail him and I fail you if I leave out the difficult part to spare your feelings, much as I might be tempted to. We're all partners with those Jews in the temple in their wickedness. Peter reminded them in verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. They killed God. They killed the author of life. And we have that same strand of wickedness in our hearts. We know that if God fell into our hands, if he were vulnerable and left to our mercy, we in our fallen state would kill him. And God stands ready to forgive us for that, to forgive us for that wickedness. Mm. Amazingly, in the language of verse 24, he wants to bless us by turning every one of us from our wickedness. And then he wants to give us new life and authority in Jesus' name and times of refreshing in his presence. But if we will not repent and not turn from our wickedness, then we will die for it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. I urge you then to repent and choose life, to enlist in the kingdom of God under King Jesus. His kingdom is built on love and kindness, a kingdom of justice and peace, where even a lame beggar is treated as a person, one that Jesus wants for a worshipper. And the king wants nothing more than to see all of us raised up, walking and leaping and praising God. Amen.